from the Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. So this is, we're in a series called um, Sus Sus, which is brilliant uh, for 13-year-olds, but as a grown man, I thought it'd be brilliant as well. And the whole concept, look, first, right, I, I said this last week, but I think it's very important, pastors, churches, famous for plagiarism, right? They will steal ideas and works and cite works and make it sound like, oh, I just came up with this, you can do hard things. That's not me. That's Glennon Doyle. And people are like, wow, you really inspired me. I'm like, you think I could come up with that? No, that's, that's Glennon Doyle. Um, uh, but uh, this series, Sasas, came um, inspired by uh, a real-life event, and then also um, Grace Point Church in Nashville did a series called um, Unhelpful. And so if you went and like, listened to the series, which it's a great church, um, you'd be like, wow, that sounds like some of those points Sauter took. I did. Right? I'm giving them all the credit and all the power and reinterpreting some of those things into... Um, our own. And uh, the whole idea is Christians for, I would say, the last couple generations, maybe longer, but like we use these taglines, we use these phrases that are like forward-facing loving, right? I believe they have the best intentions. Like last week we did um, God told me, right? Or the Bible clearly says. And whatever you put in after that, rarely do you like like here, well, God told me to. It's usually it's not. It's not like yeah. It's usually like uh, you just said that out loud, all right? So um, you can catch the introduction and the first one last week. Today we're doing, um, and I want to. I'd like you to raise your hand if you've ever actually heard this phrase used at all, right? Like in an actual setting, not like um, talking about it. Um, well, God just needed another angel. Have anyone ever heard that at a funeral before? Wow, that's way more than I thought. I, I've, um, I've only heard this um, at two funerals. One was one I did for an infant, and yeah, that's, yeah, it sucks. Um, and one, we had a student when I was a youth pastor um, had um, an accidental death, and someone got on stage, and it was another student, right? And with the best intentions, saying, well, man, God just really needed this person's name up in heaven. And we do this uh, because we don't know how to process complex thoughts, especially when it comes to grief. Another example, I had a friend um, who took their own life and went to the funeral and really loved this person. And I'm sitting in the back of the funeral next to their um, ex-partner. They were married, and then through a series of events, mental illness played a huge part in this. Um, they got divorced, and they showed up, and I didn't know, so we sat together. We're seeing the family gets up and talks about light and how when this person showed up, they just, it was like a black hole of love. You just like, they would suck you in, and you're like, yes, I do feel loved by you. Thank you. You're an incredible person, right? And they could go from that to uh, a completely other world where they would just shut themselves off from the entire world. Um, and so the family's telling all these beautiful stories, how there's hope, and and it, you're like, yes, this is what funerals should be, a celebration of life at its finest. And then the pastor gets up and gives their homily or eulogy, and it's the only time, like hand of God, Sarah can attest to this because I imagine she feels the same, the only time I almost got up 
and, and said, we have to be done. This is the Lord's name in vain through and through, right? Because after this beautiful family talking, pastor gets up and is talking about, uh, man, this person is more than the worst thing they've ever done. Oh, you know, yeah, you know, this is the, the last thing they did in their life. There's so much more than that. And they were shaming her. They were shaming my friend. They were talking about like, well, you know, they're really a better person. And I'm like, no one is making any um, recognition that she wasn't good. Yes, she took her own life, right? And that is a very nuanced, complex thing. But that was her decision. I wish she didn't, but she did. And it's not the worst thing she's done. So, and let's just play this out for a second, right? Because I love doing this. The theology, what the, what, he, what the pastor's getting at is like, well, you know, maybe she's not in hell. That's really, they're trying to make everyone feel like, well, maybe she's probably not in hell. And there's this theology, right? Um, if you believe in hell, <laughs> I should say that, in a conscious torment hell, um, that uh, if you took your own life, the last thing you did would be a sin, right? So if you end your life with a sin, God's up in heaven saying, oh, you should have tried a little bit harder than that, my friend, right? And that would be, okay, then play that all the way out, which to me is very important, that if um, I was standing in the middle of the street and I'm crossing and I don't see a bus coming and I thought, man, I should probably keep some of my money for myself just a little bit more, right? We would call that greed, Greed sin, right? It would be greed, right? And that would be, that would be kind of a, of a sin. Or if I thought, man, I want to punch Jeremy Weaver in the face, right? Jesus says, if you think it, it's the same as doing it, right? And I, if that's what I think, I get hit by a bus, right? That's, it's, the same, it's the same theological point. And to me, that's a monster God. The God needs another angel is a monster, is a monster God. But why do we do this? This is, it's really important, like, because we all, to some degree, have done this, and hopefully don't, when you see someone in pain, and you kind it's usually not just the people you really love, but someone you kind of know, maybe you work with, and they're a mess. Maybe they lost someone, maybe they lost a job, maybe they're going through a, a, a mental health episode, and it's, it's, it's really difficult, and you show up in the room, or you show up at the funeral, and you just don't know what to do, so you just want to say something, and what, what, what do we usually say? hey, if you need anything, you just let me know. And if you've ever lost someone, right? Like if I said that to Jeremy and said when he, his dad passed away, I said, hey, you just, if you need some, you let me know. The last thing on Jeremy's mind is like, I better call Sodder because I really need some help right now. And I can actually, I can really help with my leaves right now because I'm in so much grief. You, when you're in that world, you're, you're swimming in a different reality, right? But we say those things because we want to bring comfort, because we love them, we care for them. And we just don't know how to I- engage. And then we also do this, right, in, a, in a, another sense of where we are afraid, or maybe not, not even we're afraid, we're uncomfortable with us being sad, right? We're uncomfortable with us grieving. We're uncomfortable with us being lonely or in pain or whatever it might, or be in some sort of nuanced place. And so you show up at work, you show up at a family function, or you show up at church, and you're, you feel like by me being in pain or me being in a place of question, me being in grief, what do you do? You show up and you're like, hey, how you doing? Blessed 24-7, all right? Praise them, right? We lie. We show up and put a smile on our face. Um, one of my favorite bands, Wilco, um, they have a song, um, How to Cure Loneliness. You just smile all the time, right? Has anyone ever felt like you have to change who you are to walk in a room? 
that like you thought like by me being a hot mess, by me w- with my mental illness or me being angry, me being sad, we have to just like, no, I'm good, I'm happy. Why? Because we somehow equate happiness to goodness. We somehow uh, uh, associate happiness and goodness then to something maybe even sacredness or holiness. I'm really good when I'm smile. I'm really good when I'm happy. But that also implies that if you're in a space of anxiety, are you bad? Are you bad? The answer is no. <laughs> you're not. It's, it's who you are. But we feel this pressure show up. And here's, here's maybe an example. I think one of the ways, especially when it comes to church or it comes to spirituality, and we talk about this often, like God is a big fan of the real you, and the real you should have some serious questions. It should have some um, uncertainty, and that's not bad. It should have some maybe anxiety of reengaging with God or the Bible. And I think one of the reasons is, is that we, we can think about God in so many different ways and, and at all at different times. But a common way of thinking about God is God is it's called impassable, right? That God is like outside of time. God is outside of reality. God is like outside of this existence and looking down on the earth and saying, uh, I already know how this all ends. Can we hurry it up, right? And we think then in our reality, what we do can't impact God. The realities of earth, realities of my mental illness, the realities of my marriage, or the realities of climate change, God is just not, like, can't be really moved by that. And one of the ways that you, you kind of, um, that you might, this might trigger of, like, uh, you might say this, is when you think, oh, man, like, God isn't really concerned with my needs, right? And we usually project because there's so much bigger needs somewhere else, of thinking God is not concerned at all with my struggles or my wants or my beauty or my frustration or my anger. And the truth is, um, all throughout this Bible that we call holy, there is a God who's actively engaged in the real world, right? Like God has feelings. She is, she and he and they are all over the map, right? So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, uh, Moses is walking by, sees the burning bush, walks up to it, and he takes his um, sandals off because it's holy ground. This is why anytime you're in the city limits of Carlton, I have my shoes off, all right? Another Carlton, you're welcome. So um, what am I talking about? Moses. And uh, walks the burning bush, and God says, uh, Moses, you're going to lead my people because I have heard my people's cries, right? They're enslaved for generations and generations. And so there's this transaction of God saying, hey, I was over here, and I heard their cries. Now I'm over here, and I'm going to bring liberation, this is crazy. So then Moses does all these stuff, does, um, uh, what do you call them? Not tribulations. What are the, the, um, the ten signs? Um, the plagues. Thank you. All right, fellow North Central graduate over here, right? <laughs> uh, the plagues, right? And God, like, intervenes, does these crazy, crazy things to get people's attention. Finally, Pharaoh lets them go. They cross the Red Sea. They're, they're in the wilderness. And Moses goes up this mountain. He's hanging out with God just a little too long because everyone else down here at the bottom mountain's like, hey, Moses, where'd you go? Well, we better make an idol. I bet this is exactly how it went. We better make this idol and worship it. So they do. They throw this big party. They're worshiping this idol. And then God is hanging out with Moses. All of a sudden, God looks down. He's like, what in the world is happening? I better kill all of them. Right? That's, he's like, he's going to bring judgment on all of them. Just like 20 chapters before this, God says, I heard their cries. I'm going to deliver them. Now God's like, I hear your cries from this party. Not a fan. I'm going to kill you. 
And what does Moses do? Moses reminds God who God is. Moses pleads for the people. And this is what God says in Exodus 32. And God did think twice. He decided not to do the evil he had threatened against his people. God decided to not do the evil that he was going to do, right? And this is, again, a little Bible nerd thing over here. This is why I love the Bible, because they leave the messy parts in. God doing evil doesn't, like, how does that, like, inner work? Exactly, right? This is a complex, nuanced ways of people thinking this is how God should be and culturally how gods were, and this is a God that is very different. God hears. This happens two or three other times in the Bible. Then, the best example, Greg Boyd, a theologian and a theologian and pastor um, at Woodland Hills Church. He's my mentor. If you ever bump into Greg Boyd and said, hey, your mentee Chris, he's a big, like, and he's not, he doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know who I exist, but he's my mentor. In the same way Barack Obama is my mentor, too. He doesn't know who I exist. Um, what am I talking? Oh, Greg, Greg Boyd says, um, we have a Jesus-looking God, which I love that line. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels. Jesus is all over the map emotionally as well. There's a, a story where Jesus premeditates making a weapon, right? And he brings it into the temple court, and he starts flipping tables. Why? Because they were using it to marginalize and take advantage of other people. Jesus weeps when his best friend um, dies. Uh, Jesus um, is praying that there'd be some other way than going through the whole trials and um, the cross because Jesus is like, I want, maybe there's some other path where he's praying so hard that he is, um, that there's blood coming out out of his pores, right? Jesus, time and time again, takes his privilege as a rabbi, as a male, and sets it aside to empower and believe other people. We have a very emotional God, which is great. God's all over the map, which is good news, because I don't know about you, I am all over the map. And if that's true about God, if that's true about the Christ, that's true about us. We don't have to just pick one emotion. We don't have to just pick one thing and Alan say, well, this is always the best. We can be everywhere because the real you is beautiful. And the real you is going to be all over the map. So here's a quick couple things of why I think that we, um, why we traditionally do this. First one is this. To sit in someone else's pain, to, to show up and validate their pain or their grief or the loss, it costs you something. And what it costs you is usually it's going to be a mirror about your own trauma, your own grief, and your own pain and your own loss. And we work so hard at avoiding those conversations. We numb it with booze. We numb it with other substances. We numb it with volunteering at school even more, work extra hours at work, just distract ourselves right? One of the best things for COVID for me was I was forced to, like, sit with my own thoughts. <laughs> Anyone else? Right? It, I, it was. I, I was so used to, like, my anxiety I thought was just called hustle. I thought it was being productive. I thought it was leadership. It was just distracting me from the things that my body and my spirit and my mind were demanding me to answer. All right? And when you show up with someone who's in pain or grief, you can't, the only way you can do it is by being vulnerable, right? We had um, someone in our church lost their brother to a tragic accident, and they called one of our friends. That friend called me, and I have this talk all the time, like, they're freaking out, as you should, when your brother dies. What do I do? What do I say? Because instantly you feel like, 
I have to go rescue, I have to go solve the problem. And we think somewhere inside of us, oh, if I have the right phrase, if I have the right prayer, if I have the right quote, right, then maybe that will, rescue will deliver them from that pain. And what I told this person and many other persons saying, um, yeah, that's never going to happen. What a cold world it would be if we could just automatically remove pain from my mom, ever having experienced kind of pain. The only thing you can do is show up. You want to know the most holy, sacred things you can do with people who are in, who are in pain or in loss? Is you sit with them. That's it. Because you have to go through the process. And when you're doing that and you have to be vulnerable, it's going to dial up those things inside of you. So my encouragement is think of ways of where you can get in touch with what your body and your mind is telling you, right? Second thing, if you were uh, an evangelical teenager and you went to youth group, maybe you heard something like this. Um, if you just have more faith, maybe your depression will go away. If you, <laughs> Patty's already shaking her head. <laughs> if you just really, just really wanted that, maybe God would cure you of your anxiety, right? And the truth is, like, no, that's just not how it works. I remember praying for my friend Amy, um, uh, who, who was depressed, and we were all, like, saying, Amy, you just have to claim your healing. Amy, you just have to have, Jesus says, to have faith of a mustard seed. You can bring the mountain into the waters. Just let's do this. Have faith. And you put this pressure on yourself. I don't Has anyone else been here before? You just think, I have to have more faith. And when you don't see the healing, you don't see the transformation, you go to what? Shame. What is wrong with me? I'm a horrible person. Other people, you have more faith than, than I have more faith. And it just leads to this horrible, horrible monster God mentality as well. Because the truth is, God is a big fan of you, period. Right? I love talking about this, that Adia is uh, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And that the living Christ has always been in you and always will be in you. And it doesn't matter, whatever you think, if I can just get to X, if I can just um, be healed from this, if I can just transition through this, once I arrive at this, then what? You're better? No. You're, this, you're equally loved by God, and there's nothing anyone or anything in this world can do to change that. Right, last one. This is my favorite one. Why do we feel this pressure to uh, pretend to be happy or, like, shove down our feelings? Um, is this, is that it's easy to forget the transformational power of pain, right? And this is not a, like, I don't like advocate like, hey, Todd, make sure you get in as much pain as possible because then transformation can happen. I am a fan of anti-pain, <laughs> right? I am pro-opposite of pain. Um, but there's something that can happen in those really hard spots, right? So, um, uh, with the story of uh, Jesus, right? Jesus praying, if there's any way to get around this whole thing of like going to the cross, big fan, I choose that. And he doesn't. He has to walk through incredible amounts of pain, right? And then in resurrected life, he's walking around and there's a guy named Doubting Thomas, which really sucks for Thomas because he asked one question. And <laughs> they're like, for all eternity, you're doubting Thomas. He's like, come on, man, one question. Um, uh, Thomas, you know, wants to see if this resurrected Christ, if it really is his buddy Jesus as he thought it was. And Jesus says, yeah, come and touch my scars, which is interesting. Because when we think of resurrected bodies, we think of going to heaven, we like to think of streets of gold and perfect bodies and perfect teeth and perfect skin and perfect hair and whatever perfection looks like for you. We usually 
uh, equated to some sort of ableness, right? It's a very abled way of, of thinking. And Jesus, you know, kind of a big deal in heaven, right? Jesus has scars, which I love. Because it's in pain, you're going to have scars. And I think those scars tell a story that you can do hard things. Credit Glennon Doyle, <laughs> right? The scar tells a story that you are still here, that you have survived. And even in those scars, there's going to be a story of pain, of taking advantage, being taken advantage of, of lonely and grief. But it shows you can do it. Because when it comes to pain, I, I, I wish I could do like the, um, what do you call the ole? Like the pain's running at me. I'm like, I'm right here. You're going to hit me. Oh, ole. See you later, pain. Right? That's what I'd wish. But I've learned, like Richard Orr says, you're going to find transformation, deep love or deep pain. And Chris Sauter finds transformation <laughs> way too many times in deep pain. Deep love, when I met my kids for the first time, right? That changed me. That transformed me. When I met Nikki in seventh grade, that, that radically changed me. Those are about it. <laughs> I'm going to transform my love. Everything else is deep pain. Because Jesus says this. Uh, Jesus says, in this world, you will find trouble, but take heart, for you have overcome the world. Paul says, don't find yourself surprised in the, the fiery ordeal you find yourself in. Paul later on says, don't like, grieve like those who don't have hope. Grieve with, like those who do have hope. Meaning what? You can find hope that you find belonging, that you find acceptance, that you find beauty, even amidst the pain, not just the lack of it. So my encouragement to you is this. Use the pain. Use that grief. Use that hard work. Use that struggle. And let it transform you. Because when there's pain, it can, pain sometimes tells you to shrink and get small. Right? Like, bring up, like, um, Maybe you experienced some pain or loss when the Supreme Court punched down Roe versus Wade to statewide levels, right? Because instantly, we knew there was going to be like 13, 15 states that women lose access to health care. Instantly. And as a straight, middle-aged white man, I felt rage, <laughs> right? And I'm not going to project on what anyone else in this room feels. Imagine uh, females and non-males, non-binary people might have felt something a little different than me right? You have options. You can let that rage silence you. And that's usually what systems want to do. We're going to silence you, sit down, be quiet. Why? Because then we have the dominant way of speaking. What I've seen a lot of people do is taking that rage and that pain and strap up the boots and hit the streets to get on the computer and start emailing their senators, to start making phone calls, to start writing letters to people who might be uh, in a political space. It might be showing up and having hard conversations. Why? Because pain transforms you. You're not going to sit back, and it, beyond just Roe versus Wade, whatever it might be, not sitting back and watching other people, the trauma happen again and again and again. You stand up and say, no more. I, I think we miss out sometimes of the power of transformation. So here's two tips, two tips, just in case you're in a space of grief or loss. First one is this. Get really weird, right? Get super weird. And <laughs> Heather's like, I'm already there. Right? Uh, get weird meaning this. Practice silence and solitude. And maybe for some of you, that's not weird. That's my life, right? For me, it was very weird. Um, it might be taking five minutes and, uh, on the way to work, not having no radio, no phone call, and allow your mind and your body and your spirit to have a conversation with you because it's talking. Maybe it's taking an hour a week and just journaling. I do two silent, or I call them not-so-silent retreats, um, 
because at night I watch movies, <laughs> but during the day, because I'm not a true monk yet, right? Because um, I'd read these books in like silence and solitude. I'm like, I can't sit silent for a week. I, that's just, I'm not there yet. Growth opportunity. But what I do is I take the whole day and I read and I journal and I talk to myself. Ooh, I don't want to start crying. Talk to myself a lot. I walk through the woods and talk because I'm a verbal processor and I'm surprised at things that come out of my mouth. I'm like, I've been carrying that for months, sometimes years, but I don't have any, I didn't at the time have a place to process those things, even with my counselor, because it felt like that's too crazy, <laughs> right? That's too crazy. Find a place where you can practice silence and solitude to some degree. La and lastly is this, and this might be obvious, but um, get help. Like, get a therapist. Find a counselor. If you can't afford one, we, we can refer you to um, counseling sessions for free, right? If you don't know what counselor, you're like, well, I don't know where I want to go, you can talk to me, and I can get in touch with some amazing people. But the reason I say this is sometimes the church historically has been like, hey, just go to the pastor for counseling. Yeah, don't. <laughs> right? I am one of, the, one of the pastors, right? I'm in that group. Like, we have stopped doing premarital counseling, um, because people, like, go to school for eight years for that, right? Where they have to go through clinical studies about the help, like, what are some roadblocks? I'll meet with people getting married, and I'll share some tips. I'm not counseling, right? We stopped doing any kind of marriage counseling for the very same reason. I'll meet with you if you want to talk and process and pray, right? I think that's a beautiful thing. But get professional help because you are, you're worth it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, if you're able to, to stand. And I'm going to pray. And the reason I'm asking you to stand um, is there's, a, there's something about standing once in a while when we're praying as being a, a, aware and alert of our body. So I'm going to pray. I might be quiet for a little bit. And what I'm going to ask you to do, if you feel comfortable, is to close your eyes. And I want you to be present with um, God, goddess, spirit, universe, wherever you name and identify as a way of finding some sense of belonging. So God, we, we love you. And we say thank you that you are always eternally present with us. So I ask Holy Spirit that you would that you would come and you just dial up, turn up the volume just a little bit more of what our body, our mind, or our spirit, or emotions, or our trauma has been trying to tell us for a while. And we welcome it with no shame. Because the real us, who we are in this space, in this breath, is wonderful. It is beautiful. And will you give us what we need to be able to process this, that we don't need to olay the pain, we don't need to sidestep the pain, or the anxiety, or the loneliness, we can hold it 
for exactly what it is. We help us move through it and move with it. And I am thankful that we do not have to do it alone. That we have you, but we also have the people around us, our friends, our family, our chosen family, our therapists, our primary doctors. All of it belongs. I pray that you'd use us to grow through our own pain, our own trauma, but also, God, that we could extend that healing and liberation and freedom to those around us. And we love you. Amen. All right. Thank you, friends. If you would like to process, you would like to pray, or you'd like to rage into the void, <laughs> I'm here to do that with you after. Feel free. I'll be here for the next half hour. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and thank you for coming to Neighborhood Church.